Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome back to the AMR Studios for our first episode of the year 2022. Today we have an interview with a recent graduate from the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, so a recently defended his PhD, Dr. Christian Malmberg. Eva interviewed him on the 20th of January this year, so I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, everyone. It is my pleasure to have here with us today our first defended PhD student that's been part of UAC from the very beginning, Christer Malmberg. And we're going to learn a little bit about his journey, what is it that he did during his PhD, and what is it that he's doing now, and his outlook for the future as well. Christer, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Yes, hello. Yeah, I am currently acting as the uh, chief scientist at the uh, biotech startup called Gradientech, and we're working with um, diagnostics uh, of antimicrobial resistance. So we are developing uh, new instrumentation and assays for rapidly measuring uh, antibiotic susceptibility and antibiotic resistance. My background is as an engineer. So I've studied uh, biotech engineering here in Uppsala. Um, I graduated 2010, and then I spent some time in the research field working on combinations of antibiotics to enhance effect, effects of uh, therapies and so on. Also screening for combination effects of different antibiotics. So you joined UAC with the first batch of PhD students and at the time you were already working in the company that you're working with now, Gradient Tech, but you decided to pursue um, what we call industry PhD program. How was the experience uh, for you on this? Yeah, this, this is very true. Actually, the, the reason I did that is because in my line of work at the company, I, I was working half-time at the company at the time and half-time in a research group as a research engineer. And we were publishing quite much. So I realized since I'm already publishing and performing research, why shouldn't I also pursue my PhD at the same time? I don't think it's very common in uh, at least our university to have PhDs that are partially working in a company and doing uh, research academic work. How difficult or how hard it is to actually be able to have those two streams line of work at the same time? Yeah, uh, th this is actually, it is both difficult and, and easy at the same time. The difficult part comes from, for example, as you say, there are very few and there are actually no real Maybe there are, but I'm not aware of them. No real guidelines. For example, how do you do with your employment? Uh, in my case, I was employed both at the company and at the university at the same time, working part-time. But some other industry PhD students might be employed at the university full-time. And there's also, I believe, industry PhD students which are employed at the company full-time and have a sort of academic supervisor. And how you set up your employment dictates very much how you are able to divide your time and how easy or hard it is for you to, to actually get time to work on your project. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yeah, so for me, it was quite it was difficult to understand how to set up the administrative part of being an industry PhD student. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think even in the end, I was not finished with everything that that you should have done, for example, 
uh, it's very good and I can really recommend it to anyone listening if you're trying to pursue an industry PhD and uh, be very careful in setting up a document which specifies an agreement between you, your company and your university. What are your obligations? What are your rights? How will you divide your time and so on so that you have it on paper? It's very easy to have just an informal agreement, but a four-year PhD program is a long time and things can change along the way. So it's, it's a very strong recommendation for me to set up such an agreement if you're planning an industry PhD. But at the same time, it is also easy because, of course, as part of a company which has a very defined goal, there's also lots of resources. I was never the single alone PhD student toiling away in the corner of the lab. Uh, there was more like a large team around me which could support both in advice, in discussions, but also in, in things like laboratory work and helping decide which way to go next and so on. So it, it's, it's, you have much more support from the environment around you in, in, in the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, this was rather evident when I was present at your defense for your PhD that the work was quite extent and I think that's also due to the fact that you were in an environment that had a lot of push to get somewhere as well you know sometimes science in academia can be a little bit slow and not mm. perhaps as goal-oriented as the work that is done in a company. Can you tell us a little bit of what it is that you were researching and doing during your PhD? Yeah so actually when I started working together with the company Gradient Tech we got approached in our research laboratory by the company. They wanted to evaluate their uh, assay for rapidly measuring uh, antibiotic susceptibility. The data that they were showing us looked very interesting. So we decided to apply for some money together to Innova and to uh, make a small project of evaluating their method with some clinical strains. So this was actually the start of the entire project because this turned out then in the end to become the first paper of my thesis. So we did a, a small study there looking at this uh, microfluidic assay for generating very precise but small and defined gradients of antibiotics in, in microfluidic chambers. And at the same time, you're growing bacteria in these chambers and you're looking at where do they stop growing throughout this antibiotic gradient. This allows you then to measure a quantitative value, which is the, the concentration of antibiotic at which these bacteria stop growing. From there, when we actually could show in the first study that this, this works, this method, uh, you can rapidly, within hours, get a reliable and precise measure of the susceptibility. Actually, it was more a question of, okay, where do we go next? Mm -hmm. Because the first, the first initial assay was very cumbersome. It's, it's something you were loading one assay with a single chamber, with a single drug and a single bacteria, and putting this in a very... A sort of built together prototype instrument and like uh, I don't know three out of four times something failed along the way and you had to restart over and so on and the process from there to actually having a system a diagnostic system which is usable and which can reliably put out values and and, and be robust and so on this is the process which was basically part of my PhD mm -hmm. to go from scaling up First, we scaled up the assay to a multi-scale assay. So we had several um, samples on the same chip. So we had to design a new chip and design new instrumentation and so on. But when, then we also looked at how to make this chip usable, to package it as, as something that, that an end user can use without having to pipette 20 different wells into 20 different holes and so on. 
most of this work was done, of course, by a whole team here at the company looking at the cassettes. But in the beginning, the fundamental parts of how do we structure this product? Do we go for for a chip which you can load by a robot, but it's very simple? Or do we go to, for a complex chip which you can load through one port, but then there's lots of different connections in there, putting the sample in its correct space and so on. All these things came out of from studies that we were doing in the lab during the PhD phase. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that your background was in engineering, you study engineering, which is perhaps an area that is not readily seen as so related to AMR. Mm -hmm. How did you get to apply your engineering background and knowledge into the AMR field? How did you get into the AMR field? Yeah, as I said, I actually, in the end of my studies, I uh, applied to be part of the uh, Uppsala Graduate School in Biomedical Science. And as part of that, uh, you took one year and you had three different projects. And I decided to try all three different disciplines of biotechnology, which is red, medical, green, environmental, and white, I think, sort of laboratory. Mm -hmm. The last one, I decided to go in AMR to look mm -hmm. at biotic resistance. And I got to contact with a group here at the university led by Professor Otto Kars. So some lectures from him, and it was a very engaging character. So I decided to apply to his lab. And they took me in, and the first project they did there was actually to quantify bacterial cell death using flow cytometry. So we're using fluorescent labelings to be able to quantify and measure uh, cell death very rapidly, mm -hmm. which is <laughs> quite similar to uh, actually what I'm doing right now. How do you measure cell death very rapidly? This is it's funny how things go. But uh, I found the, uh, the field very interesting. You know, when I was writing my exam report, I realized that this is actually something that I could imagine doing later on because antimicrobial resistance, it's such a huge problem. It's such a fascinating problem with so many, very many different aspects. And there is really much you can do uh, from an engineering point of view. If you look at possibilities for new products, possibilities for diagnostic products, but also new drugs and so on, all areas actually involving uh, engineering. Mm -hmm. That's a very, very nice standpoint. And I guess, I mean, since you did your PhD and now you're continuing working in the topic, it's something that you see yourself developing further in your career, I assume, right? Yeah, sure. Of course, when, when you're looking at the problem of AMR, it is so huge, There's so many aspects. And as an engineer, you take the, the tool, the, the tool you have, and you apply it. So as an engineer, you want to build something new. You want to make a new instrument or a new assay, or a new drug, or maybe a, a new t kind of treatment whatsoever. But but in the end, maybe it would be better to, to put your resources on something else mm -hmm. that would be more beneficial for reducing uh, AMR. Uh, I mean, statistically, if you look at the numbers, coin for coin, if you want to be efficient, you should not be building new assays. You should be maybe improving how you're using the drugs. How are we using antibiotics in, in Africa, in, in Brazil? Why do we still have millions of, actually billions of people drinking water contaminated with feces and so on? Mm -hmm. uh, these are issues which are way bigger than whether we have a new diagnosis. But as an engineer, looking at my skill set and what I can do, this is uh, my sort of way of contributing to the whole. Great. For the people that are not so familiar with the current status of diagnosis in bacterial infections and AMR in particular, what does your new product bring to the field and how 
does it improve the way that we diagnose infections, but also look for what treatments are the most useful for particular infections? If you look at diagnostics today, there is very little that has changed in some aspects from how it was done 50 years ago. Basically, you're still doing lots of plates with bacteria on and you're using test strips or you're using paper discs uh, with antibiotics in them and you're measuring zone diameters and so on at very many places in very many laboratories. There are more automated instruments, but most of the technology out there today is rather slow. You have a system where the treating clinician doesn't expect to get an answer back in the next three to four days, maybe. Uh, in very rapid situations, you could maybe get an answer two days from when you sample the patient when we're looking at sepsis and bloodstream infections, which is mainly what we're working at right now. And since these types of infections are very time critical in how rapidly you administer the correct uh, antibiotic, you use empirical treatments. So you're basically dosing and choosing the agent based on the local epidemiology of the hospital where you're situated, and you're hoping that this will work. And what rapid diagnostics, and especially the, the product that we're developing, brings to the table is that you can reduce this time to hours instead of, of days. Of course, you still have to have a blood culture. You still have to enrich the bacteria. You're not looking at single hours from you sample the patient and you get the result. But, but in a recent study, for example, we could show that in 21 hours, we had a sample from where you sampled the patient in the arm, but also that half of this time was transportation. Mm. So the sample was being transported somewhere, or the sample was standing on a bench somewhere. So if you are able to reduce transportation time, and if you're able to improve the sample logistics, you could with our system potentially have an answer in uh, maybe 12 hours after resampling the patient. Mm -hmm. I guess that would involve having equipment in in the facility, for example, let's say a hospital, a hospital that is dealing with a potential sepsis uh, patient, and then having to do it all in-house, you could reduce the amount of hours to treatment quite a lot. And this is not saying that, you know, they have to wait for the treatment, but we can see the situation where there is a suspected sepsis, there is an empirical treatment mm -hmm. that starts as soon as, as it's needed, and then the added information from this diagnostic tool could help with de-escalation, that means reducing the amount yes. of drugs that are given or even changing to the most efficient treatment for that particular infection. So we are yeah. talking about reducing the amount of antibiotics and also targeting the right treatment. Yes, exactly. This is very true. Mostly you are concerned with uh, finding the correct treatment to reduce mortality and to reduce the side effects and so on. But also it's incredibly important with stewardship and still achieve applications of these types of rapid diagnostics to be able to quickly go to narrow spectrum drugs to avoid using broad spectrum drugs that we know are pushing resistance and so on. Mm -hmm. But this is one thing about the QuickMake product. And what we have thought when we developed it is that we will make it small and we will make it handleable so that you potentially could have it closer to where the patient is treated. So that's the thing. Today, most diagnostics are carried out in centralized laboratories. In some countries, it's still a trend that laboratories are being even more centralized. They're getting further away from the patient, like in Germany, where we see that in some places they have maybe four to five days before the sample even 
reaches the laboratory. Mm-hmm. But in other places, we do have a trend of actually moving the diagnostic infrastructure closer to the patient, maybe not into the patient room, this is quite far off, but at least to the clinic, or maybe even to other departments like clinical chemistry, which is usually manned around the clock instead of shutting down uh, night time and evenings, like most microbiological laboratories do today. Mm-hmm. This move of instrumentation, uh, for example, in Uppsala the laboratory has moved the blood culture incubators, the instruments where you put your blood cultures in, down to the hospital from the laboratory so that they are accessible around the clock so that you very rapidly can take the sample from the patient and put it into the incubator. Mm-hmm. And this we see in our study as well. We see that the time from patient sample to blood incubation is here in Uppsala usually just an hour or even less. But then after the incubation is done and you have a positive result, you need to take the sample and transport it to the hospital laboratory. So this transportation time is, has just been moved. Instead of being before you enter it into the incubator, it's after you have it out of the incubator. So the total time until you get an actionable result from the antibiotic susceptibility test is still similar. Mm-hmm. So the point of having a small and automated antibiotic susceptibility test that you could put down close to the incubator is that you would reduce also these types of logistical times. So that it would be possible to run these assays since they are automated without being a lab technician, maybe even a nurse could start it. And then the result could be interpreted by the microbiologists remotely or when they arrive, for example, in, in the morning shift. Mm-hmm. And then also there's like, like three points of the thing we're developing now. We're also looking at the uh, precision of results. Because one problem today with the current antibiotic susceptibility tests are that they are quite imprecise. Mm-hmm. If you take broth microdilution, which is the reference standard AST, you have a quite wide margin uh, of error. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little bit technical, but if you get an answer that this specific bacteria is susceptible to a concentration of eight milligrams per liter of this antibiotic, it can vary from four to 16. So plus or minus one doubling step. This is the acceptable variation in the method, Mm -hmm. which is quite a wide interval because usually whether a bacteria is sensitive or sensitive with increased exposure or resistance, so SIR categorized against a specific drug, can be, for example, 4, 8, or 16. Mm -hmm. This means that using the reference standard method, if you test a specific sample one day, it might be susceptible, and the next day it might be high, increased exposure, and the next day it might be resistant. And all of these are actually within the acceptable precision of the method. Mm -hmm. So what we are looking at with our method is that we are using a different scale. We're using a linear scale, which allows us to answer with very much high precision. So we can say susceptibility against this drug is 4.5. And next day we get 4.7. And the next day with 4.3. But it's always going to be 4, something, which means that we get the same category every time, which Mm -hmm. means that we have a higher precision than the reference method. And this allows us to start looking at other applications. For example, something called PKPD-based dosing, where you look at pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics so the, how the bacteria are interacting with the drug and how the drug is interacting with the body mm-hmm. to try to more precisely dose the drug. And these models, they've been looking at 
quite much in recent years. But one problem is that when you're using the models to know how much to dose, basically you want to measure how susceptible is the bacteria. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the patient, how heavy is the patient, what's his renal clearance and different types of things you can measure in the lab. You put this into a big equation and then you get, aha, this is the dose I should use to optimize the efficacy of the therapy. Mm -hmm. But when the MIC value put in is measured by a method that's highly variable, mm -hmm. you get a very wide span of concentrations or, or dosages you want to use. So you cannot reliably say which dose you should use. And then you pick the highest dose. And then basically you haven't gained very much from using these PKPD-based doses. Mm -hmm. But if you have a precise mix value in the beginning, then you can also get a precise predicted dose on the other side. Mm -hmm. This is at least what we're what we want to look at. So th this falls in the realm of what is called personalized or individualized medicine, right? You are taking into yes. account all the different factors that are not just with the drug and the bacteria, but also taking account that each patient might metabolize, you know, yeah, work with exactly. the drug in a different way. And for that, you need to have really, really precise numbers. And just for, you yeah. know, this is a little bit of an abstract, not abstract thing, but try to visualize it for the people that are not so familiar, the gold standard method of reference, the one you talk about, the micro dilution, it has concentrations, but it has big steps in concentrations that you use in those plates right yeah whereas the gradient that you are able to have in your method it's a gradient and therefore it's really minimal increases in the concentration of the antibiotic in your essay right yeah. so you are able yeah. to get yeah. much more precise numbers on it yeah so it's a continuous scale instead mm -hmm. of a discrete scale with with large steps in between so yeah can you maybe uh, reflect a little bit in what you think has been the hardest theme from you in your research to overcome? What has been the biggest challenges? It could be something related with, you know, the engineering. It could be from making the machine or it could be finding data. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have had very many challenges. I can <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> but part of the challenges in this development project stems from actually that we are trying to both make it more rapid, more precise, and also easier to use at the same time. So, <laughs> I mean, somewhere you have to yield on, on, on some aspect. So one difficult thing throughout this project has, of course, been how you go from a prototype to a product, right? Because mm -hmm. you stand there in the laboratory, you're making your prototype chips, you have full control of your instrument that you built with your own hands. You put the chip into the instrument, you're hand loading the bacteria into the chip. You know every little aspect, you know every little thing that could go wrong. And in the end, through skill, you're able to get an end result and to publish a nice study and, and so on. But when you're making a product out of this in the end, suddenly you don't have control at this level. There's instrumentation, it's built somewhere by someone there are calibration protocols and so on and there's cassette it's also built somewhere by someone else than you and it's also been looked at and gone through different qc levels and so on you have software and everything needs to work together as one unit and to be able to ensure that you still get the correct result this is extremely challenging because there is so very many small points all along the way which might disturb the end result so the biggest challenge for me and i think for everybody doing this kind of product development is to go from these prototypes that you have in, in your laboratory and actually to create a product which should come off the assembly line 
and work as intended. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's a fairly big thing, and it's maybe not a specific example, but this is something that you constantly run into. It really illustrates, you know, one of the hardships of trying to make something out of different small studies and research that you've done in mm. the lab and then trying to scale it up to a level where it can be helpful for a lot of people. Of course, it's hard, but I would argue that it's extremely needed. And once it's been, you know, worked through and dealt with, then you have something that potentially can can be hugely beneficial. Um mm. We are running a little bit out of time, but I will like to <laughs> to ask you, now that you have been working in this field and the field of developing diagnostic tools and working with diagnostics, what do you think is still missing in this area? And what would you like to see more of, if not only from the industry point of view, but maybe also mm. perhaps from the research or even other, other areas related to AMR? I think from a diagnostic point of view, and this is... I think reflected by not only from my opinion, but we're lacking rapid tests, rapid tests that are also very cheap and that you can be used be everywhere, like lateral flow types of tests, just to be able to discriminate whether the patient has a bacterial infection or not. Mm-hmm. I've seen things starting to maybe being developed, and but as far as I know, there is no really good way of taking a patient sample putting on a letter of flow chip or some similar very easy type of test and to get a signal, yes, this patient does have a bacterial infection or no, this patient does not have a bacterial infection so that you can decide whether you should initiate antibacterial therapy or not. Mm-hmm. And I think once you get this type of test out, then you can really start to make a difference on how you're using your drugs everywhere, not just here in, in, in developed West where we have mm-hmm. good laboratory support and so on, but also where it matters for the global AMR problem. Just for the sake of clarification, when you talk about lateral flow type of assays, it's a little bit like what we're seeing now that everyone has access to, or almost everyone, to test rapidly for COVID infection, right? You just take a sample, put it somewhere, it runs. Or, of course, the pregnancy test is something that is very well known, that it just there's a sample and you have some reagents and they're able to tell you yes or no to a specific question. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This type of test you can see everywhere in all domains of medicine. And to be able to develop them, you need some kind of target that mm-hmm. you're looking for. And this is what we don't have today. We don't have a common target for detecting a bacterial infection. All right. That's what you think it's hindering that this hasn't really been a thing yet or hasn't been able to be developed. I mean, I think you could develop some some kind of lateral flow test that would work with maybe urine or maybe with one's blood or one specific sample type and to look for a specific type of infectious agent or maybe even a group. For example, like would look at the surface protein or from E. coli or streptavidin like type of topes and so on. Uh, but so far, I don't think anyone has cracked how to make a test which is specific for uh, a um, bacterial infection, even when only looking at one sample type. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I understand. Well, that's a great thing to hope for. And I, I hope that, you know, apart from work like you're doing with a very specific outcome, you know, like this microfluidics and looking at a very mm. precise MIC, minimal inhibitory concentrations for particular antibiotics in, in bacterial samples for patients, that we can also get some more general diagnostics that can help out 
the antibiotics stewardship and be able to give antibiotics really, really only when they're needed. Obviously, the doctors yeah. want to help the patients, but it's better if they have more information about it. Before we sign off, I would like to just open the floor for you, Christer. If there's anything that you want to tell our audience, we are listened by a very varied uh, background audience. We have young people, we have experienced people, we have people that work in AMR in many different topics. So if there's anything you would like to bring up to them, now is your time. I would just think I would like to say that I think it's incredibly important that you get engaged in something, no matter if you're engaged in climate science or AMR or uh, any other of the great big questions of our era, how we are going to actually, as a species, survive the coming hundred years or even a thousand years. There are some big problems out there and they require lots of hard thinking and hard work. Everyone out there, get engaged in something, pick your topic and try to contribute. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we really need, we need to, to tackle these problems together. We need to tackle them as a group. Uh, we cannot rely on someone else fixing this problem. Uh, we, need to, we need to both contribute by ourselves, changing how we just live, how we travel, how we uh, utilize transportation, how we use medicine, everything. We need to, yeah, we need to work on this together. Don't be complacent. Mm -hmm. That's, that is a, it's a, it's a good final word. Definitely one way or another, I think we all have something that we can do even if it's not mm. directly on researching the topic or working on it, uh, these yeah. issues are highly social as well. And we yeah. are part of a society, right? So awareness, knowledge and action, I would say. <laughs> I can really recommend there's a society in, in the US, which is called the Long Now Society. And the whole point of the society is to make people think about the future, about the long future, because we humans who are here 50,000 years ago, mm -hmm. we're probably going to be here also in 50,000 years. The big question is, how will our society look then? And how will we ensure that we don't utilize, that we don't deplete all the planetary resources in this short span of time now, in this last 100 years of the industrial age, to also have a functioning and healthy society in 50,000 years? Stop looking at the next quarterly report. Raise your sights and look into the future. How do we create and live in a sustainable society for the coming future? Those are beautiful words, Christer. Thank you so much. I'm really, really happy to have had you here. I know that you are now officially a USC alumni, even though you are a little bit alone on that, but more <laughs> students are coming out of the studies soon. Uh, but we are really happy to have you in our network and be able to connect and follow closely the work that you are doing personally, the work that Gradient Tech is doing, and, and hopefully the implementation of these new techniques into the everyday work of doctors and nurses and the healthcare. Thank you so much, Christer, and I hope to hear from back from you soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back, everyone. I was uh, very, very happy to actually have been able to do this interview because, you know, Christer, after he finished, he kind of like move on to continue his work in the company. He has been a little bit away from the center activity so i'm really happy that i got the opportunity to see how he was doing and do a recap of the whole four years that he was with us jenny uh what are the highlights for you of this interview 
I think it was really fun to get the perspective of somebody who's been in the process of developing a diagnostic tool in this kind of situation, or really just going from a prototype of something to a product. And in this case, it's, you know, AMR diagnostics, but it could fit for a lot of things. It was just fun to hear, you know, he was really involved from the kind of early days where they had this little prototype that they manipulated themselves basically and put everything together and they knew exactly how it worked. And I kind of recognized that, that you get like really attached to something that you've created. And then just thinking about how it would be then to go to this product that you have to kind of let go of in a way. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. And then, I mean, just that this is in connection with diagnosing antibiotic susceptibility testing is an extra level of interest for me. I've seen a lot about this. It, this is a company that's local to Uppsala, so of course I, I've seen presentations about how the product works, and it's really interesting to see more or hear more from somebody who's been involved. I think we forgot to even mention that actually the company is here in yeah. Uppsala. The <laughs> diagnostic test environment in Uppsala is quite uh, bubbling. We have three companies that are actually working in this kind of area yeah. with, with different approaches. And I got to say, it took me a second. I was like, wait, so these people work here. It's like, we know people that have kind of moved on to these different companies. I was trying to sort it out in my head. I was like, so what were the three companies? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is this one. Okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and it was really fun. I mean, it's... I think perhaps for this particular method, of course, with Christer, we went into a little bit, what is it that this method is bringing to the table? But we kept mentioning something about this method that I think it wasn't really explained throughout the interview, and is that this method is based on microfluidics. I think we perhaps talked about microfluidics before in the podcast by covering some articles that they were using this kind of methodology for one thing or another, but maybe it's worth to explain it now just a little bit more. And microfluidics basically just means that you are working in very small size scales and you are working with very small amount of liquids, basically. So it's like a liquid at a microscopic scale. So with this, what you can actually do is to have what is called a lab on a chip. So in a very small space, you are able to put a lot of different components that are needed to run a test. And in this case, with this gradient that they are doing, basically in these microfluidic chambers and channels, what they have is agar that has antibiotic from a high concentration of antibiotic to a low concentration of antibiotic in a linear scale. So then you get this very smooth gradient of antibiotic. And then with a microscope, you are able to look into that chip and see where do bacteria actually stop growing. We will actually leave some links in the show notes. If you are interested to actually visually see this, you can go into those links and you can actually see how the process and the method works. And it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, and I think that you and Krista both bring up a lot of the kind of struggles here. So there's this balance, like you say, it's a, it's a lab on a chip. So obviously there's a level of complexity to it. And he's, as he said, you know, they tried to add many tests at the same time so you can test many antibiotics at the same time and whatnot. But it, this balance between, you know, ease of use for the final user and how fast it is, because the whole point is to try to diagnose or to get some sort of answer of the susceptibility of the strain as quickly as possible in these cases with, you know, accuracy. And I mean, there's all these different things to balance out and it must be a really difficult process. And I can see how this must have taken a lot of time for him. And obviously they're still working on this product. It's still being improved Mm -hmm. from what I understand. It's got to be tough to know where to let go a little, where to yield. Right. Um, I think it's also interesting, the thought process of like, 
will we actually get to a place where we can have such a machine really close to the patient and optimize the time from sample to result and decision as much as possible? And Kristen mentioned something that it kind of surprised me. It's like the example of Germany, where we're moving from a rather decentralized system to a really heavily centralized system that increases the times of travel and the times of waiting to get these results. And it kind of saddened me a little bit. And I understand that maybe systematically it's not easy to actually have a lab that runs around the clock in every single institution that has to deal with the patients. But efforts like the example from Christer of making machines and methods that are easy to use, are small, are reliable, they can give you results quickly, kind of falls into a big pile of water and gets diluted when you actually don't have the system where you can implement this. Yeah. And I think this isn't something I have any personal experience of at all. I have never worked in a hospital. But from when I've heard clinicians talking about these sorts of things and people that have worked with hospitals and healthcare settings and that kind of thing, they talk about this hesitancy of medical professionals to change, especially to something that's kind of in a black box system where it's not entirely transparent how something is made. They like knowing exactly what's going into it, exactly what's coming out, exactly what these numbers mean and what can be a confounding factor and whatnot. And I think there would be a bit of hesitancy to use a tool like this, which is unfortunate. I know we've talked about this maybe previously. I think it was with Chantal Morel, but there might be an extra level of resistance to bringing in a diagnostic tool, aside from cost or ease of use or how well it fits into the structure of the hospital. But there might also be other resistances as well, which is unfortunate. We have to be realistic, right, when we are working with uh, this kind of new. And I think, uh, I mean, Christer, even though he obviously is an engineer, he's working on this and he wants his product to succeed. He was obviously honest at, you know, realizing that maybe sometimes we have to put efforts in other parts of what, yeah. what would be helping us resolve the AMR issue and it might not be just this new cutting edge technique that we Mm -hmm. cannot really embed in the system and it's easier and better to actually focus on other solutions as well so yeah and it can be the thing of like you know this machine can be excellent and be great and it it's always hard to make these things work it's always hard for startups and new companies and new products it doesn't negate the the value of this product Mm -hmm. it just there's other issues at play so I hope it goes well. Yeah. And I think they do very well in thinking about these sorts of things. They think a lot about ease of use. And as far as these kinds of machines go, I feel like it is relatively transparent, mm-hmm. which I think can definitely be a help, an aid in bringing this into a clinic. It's that it's quite easy for somebody who's been working with this to understand how and why it works. I, I think that'll help in a lot of these cases for it to be something a little bit more and close to home. Mm-hmm. I agree. All in all, very exciting about what they're doing. I think it's a huge, great engineering effort from from lab to machine to potentially the clinics, if it's possible, in a relatively short amount of time. So a lot of man hours, a lot of work and good thinking put on it. So it was great to hear firsthand of what uh, Christer was doing over his PhD and see where where it might go in the future. We are also going to talk about diagnostics from a different perspective in our new sections, right, Rieni? Yes, so I think we should go ahead and go get started with that. Yeah, let's go to the news. Welcome to our news section for this month. As we mentioned, we actually have an article that ties very well into the interview we featured this month called 
direct antimicrobial resistance prediction from clinical multitoff mass spectra using machine learning. So there's quite a few buzzwords in there. It was published in Nature Medicine on January 10th of this year. So starting from the beginning, uh, Maldi-Toff is a technique that's used often now in clinical settings in relatively high resource situations where it's a way for the clinic to identify, among other things, the cause of an infection. So they can identify, for example, which bacteria is causing an infection. And in many cases, I know even some local hospitals here, they use it in these cases. So this is a machine that's already used in the clinics. And what they've done in this case is tried to use the information that comes from a Maldi-Toff breeding to teach a machine to predict antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. So they're using, this is what I think is the coolest part of this paper, they're using something that already happens, that they're already using, and they're just adding an extra layer of information that you can get out of it. And by doing this, they kind of use these huge data sets as we've talked about before with machine learning. Again, I really don't get any of this, so I'm just skimming the top here. But they train this program to predict based on, you know, here we have these multi-tough readings and this phenotypic resistance information. So whether or not the strain was resistant or not, and letting the machine figure out patterns to predict if a new strain would be resistant or not to certain antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And I think they were pretty successful in this case. They managed to, in part, both kind of teach the machine to do these predictions. They identified some potential issues. So for example, they found that it's better if the isolates are more recent rather than previous and that they're more local to the, the area as well, kind of, which makes sense. They bring up a few issues of, you know, the epidemiology of the area. In other words, which strains are causing infections and which causes of resistance are in the area. There can be an introduction of a new, say, bacterial strain that carries a certain kind of resistance that starts spreading in a hospital, and that might change the what you would expect mm -hmm. to be causing resistance. They also found that it's relatively good to look at species-specific resistances, so what causes antibiotic resistance to an antibiotic in one species can often be different than from another species. So kind of pulling them all together might not be beneficial, but since you're already looking at a multi-tuff, you can already see what species it is, you know, mm -hmm. it might be good to look at them separately. And they also brought in things of just like more recent samples might be useful because the machine gets calibrated, that gets updated, things look a little different, and those kinds of details can affect this kind of machine learning predictions. All in all, I think it was a very good study. They even looked back at a few retrospective cases, so cases that have already happened, of course, where they saw what the clinician suggested for antibiotic treatment, as well as what the actual kind of outcome resistance phenotype of that isolate was. So they could basically see if the machine's predictions would have changed the outcome of the patient treatment. And they found that in many cases it was the same. It wouldn't have changed anything, but it would have maybe confirmed. In some cases, they found that the machine prediction would actually be different from the clinician and not in a good way. I think it was three cases. But in that case, they bring up, you know, this isn't supposed to be mm -hmm. deciding. This is supposed to be giving more information to a clinician. So other factors such as, you know, patient allergies and age and known carriage of resistant bacterial strains can definitely have an impact. But they also found in some cases that the machine would have predicted that uh, treatment could have been de-escalated, meaning that they would have changed the antibiotic treatment to something more narrow spectrum that's maybe less likely to affect other things, less likely to cause problems. So that's the ideal case is when you know what the bacterial strain is and that it's not a resistant strain, you can de-escalate to something milder, for lack of a better word. Yeah. But yeah, I thought it was a really cool study. 
I really like that they're updating something that's used. Of course, Molotov is not used everywhere. It's an expensive piece of machinery, as you said before, Eva. But uh, it's it's still a good tactic, I think. Yeah, I mean, as you say, they, the strength of this is like it doesn't have to replace anything. It doesn't have to really mm-hmm. add anything or it's for settings where you already are using this. It can give you one more piece of information that can be quick because the Molotov yeah. results actually come earlier than the resistant pattern results. As we were talking with Krister before, the time is what is very important. So if there is one more piece of information and a reliable piece of information in, in that case, then the doctors can make a more uh, educated decision mm-hmm. on what to antibiotic treatment to use and the proof of the paper is that yeah in the cases where that something different might have been suggested in 80 percent of the cases that they look at even though it was a small number it actually would make a difference to have this information yeah. early on and i think yeah like you were mentioning it is something that it, because it's machine learning is very dynamic it changes it needs to be continually kind of trained so that's why you need to kind of keep feeding data into the machine yeah and i think we didn't really mention but maybe b- because the Malditov, even though it's used is a bit complicated to understand what it works it basically it's a yeah. very 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 big machine actually i had the opportunity to see one of them in a conference and i was like wow this is very big for how little and small the sample you put in so i saw a machine and it took up the whole room that we yeah, were in yeah. and then what you do is, is you put the sample in it and what it does is that it's able to analyze the proteins that are in that sample right and with the proteins the express proteins in the bacteria they are able to identify which bacteria it is it's a species identification so now the idea is that somehow the resistance in those pathogens in those samples will also give some sort of signature that the molditov is able to see within the spectra that is reading in that sample and then that's what you're training the machine to to basically learn to identify beyond species identification is like do we see any signatures of this pathogen also having a resistant profile and that's mm-hmm. basically what they are doing and i think it's a really cool thing if they could actually be implemented in the places where they already are using amaldetov as you yeah. were saying and i think it's very good i mean they're very open with the fact that this is supposed to be an additional tool for a clinician it's not supposed to be a one all you can give yeah. it to anybody and they can say oh absolutely treat with this <laughs> it, it's just supposed to give more information and a prediction i really enjoyed it it's a not open access article sadly no and it's quite long and I got to say, I understood very little of some of the details, but the, the the big picture is very interesting. We are going to link to some coverage in the popular news because it has also been going on around. So you can have a little bit more access to some data. And of course, if you have any colleague working in an academic institution or yourself, you can, you can get access to the original data and read all through this very particular teaching, uh, machine teaching, <laughs> machine learning. <laughs> I think they call it training. It's training, yeah, exactly. the training set and the test set. This is the limit of what I understand about this, is that there's a training set and a test set. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) That was great. So hope you guys enjoy if you want to read a little bit more about it. And then then we're moving into our second paper of the day, which is a pretty important, some people are already calling it a seminal paper on AMR. (laughs) And I'm very sure that uh, the majority of you are actually listening to us, even though it just came out last week, <laughs> which is crazy that it was just last week. And 
almost everybody has heard from it one way or another. And we, of course, are talking about the recent paper published in The Lancet, looking into the global burden of AMR in 2019. The actual title of this article is The Global Burden of Bacterial Antimicrobial Resistance in 2019, a Systematic Analysis. And it was published, as I said, last week, January 20th, 2022. It's actually been written, worked up by the antimicrobial resistance collaborators, which are a really, really big group of people working on this. So if you want to have more details about who particularly work on this, you can go to the original resource. And yeah, I mean, it's a seminal paper because to date is the most comprehensive systematic analysis trying to understand what is the current burden of AMR around the world. And when I mean around the world, I mean around the world, because they actually, yeah. even though we already know that there is not availability of data, perhaps in all regions across the globe, what they did was actually with the available data, be able to predict what the situation would be even for more countries than the countries we have data for. So all in all, they were able to predict the burden of AMR for a total of 204 countries around the world. And they did so by analyzing 23 pathogens and 88 pathogen drug combinations in all territories. So as you can see, at the first glance, this is a huge data set, huge data set. And the idea of this paper is like, okay, we want to know what is the burden of AMR. So not only how many people die a year of AMR, but also how much it affects the quality of life. They do that by also calculating the disability adjusted life years. And we talked about this when we talked about the Cassini paper back in 2018, mm -hmm. I believe. <laughs> yeah, I think it was 2018. Yeah, 2018. When we just started. <laughs> And with that, you can get an idea of how much the burden of specific disease it is to the population. They use the data stored by the Global Burden of Disease Data Bank, which is available for anybody to download, plus a lot of more data and studies and meta-studies. And with that, the positive thing about using this data is that you can actually compare the results with the burden of other diseases of other causes of death around the world. I still haven't mentioned the results because I think we probably <laughs> all have heard about it, but we have to say it. So the results are that in 2019, there was 1.27 million of deaths that are attributable to bacterial AMR and an additional amount that totals up to 4.95 million deaths associated with bacterial AMR in 2019. And I think it's important that we talk about this attributable versus associated, because this is also another strength of the paper, is that they are not just looking at something that is quite difficult to quantify, so how many people actually die because they had a resistant infection, but they're also looking yeah. into how many people die because they had an infection uh, kind of altogether. Yeah, they're, they're comparing to like, I mean, it all comes down to if they're saying it's caused by AMR, they're comparing it to a infection that wasn't resistant, mm -hmm. if I understand right. So they're saying basically just the AMR aspect of this infection being the cause in, uh, what is it, 1.27 yeah. million. But the other number is more when they say associated with, it's they're comparing to if that person did not have an infection. So it's the infection itself. In this case, it was a resistant infection, but it's more looking at the, that infection itself. So they're kind of balancing these two things in parallel and it emphasizes a lot in number one, I mean, how much it can just be the aspect of AMR being the problem. But it's also putting a lot of emphasis on 
infections themselves are still a big issue, basically, in my opinion, at least. Mm -hmm. I think they really emphasize that, you know, a lot of these infections are very serious. It's not just a matter of it being resistant, but resistance is definitely part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, there is so much coverage of this paper out there. I think there is not so yeah. much point for us to go deep into numerical details be beyond these two numbers, but more about what is it that this paper kind of made, made us feel and what are our yeah. perspectives on this paper. And I think, uh, obviously, first of all, is it's important because we cannot need numbers in order to frame a problem. And if we also want to have hopefully some reaction by people in power and the politicians, you have to put it into numbers and ultimately you have to put it into money, right? And the first step yeah. is actually having this kind of data. So that, that was for me one of the things like, okay, we can now have a paper of reference where we can go and say, this is the situation. I mm -hmm. also really like that then we have now a paper that is giving us a good number, we don't have to rely on the O'Neill report and predictions for the future anymore. Because I think there's a there's kind of like a mishap in the, in the narrative that we keep saying in 2050 we will have X and X, when now we're having a paper, an article, a study that is telling us this is the situation now. This is the situation yeah. almost two years ago. So you don't have to talk about the future. You Having 1.27 million people die in a year of a resistant infection that was not able to be treated. It's incredibly sad and bad. It, it really highlights the severity of the problem at, to a different level. I think instead of trying to scare people into, oh, this is going to happen if it doesn't change, it's basically like, and it's this kind of thing we talk about, this, the, the silent tsunami versus like it, it's actually already here, it's already flooding. I mean, this is the number. This is what you can tell people and say, the problem is already here. It already exists. It's very nuanced, which I think this paper is very good at explaining. You know, it's where you are, the problem changes. What the main problem is, <laughs> how bad it is. I mean, all these kinds of things. But it's great to have something that we can really point at and say, this is not a silent tsunami in that sense. This is a current problem. It's not a acute pandemic, but it already exists. It's already endemic. It's already here. And I think this paper, if you actually stop for a moment thinking beyond those two f numbers that were presented at face value, it really, really highlights the problem of excess versus access. Because you are yes. getting the data of like areas where there is actually not so many resistant infections per se. I mean, they don't have access to the second line or the third line. I mean, they they stop at maybe one treatment. They can't do much else yeah. or they don't have access to anything else. And it's it's completely unnecessary deaths. I mean, a lot of this is, of course, but it it's striking yeah. how how much of it was is because of access. And then they point out, too, you know, there this can help people that are trying to do regional interventions, basically saying, you know, in other places, we know that part of the problem is due to. Uh, overuse or misuse or maybe use in food production. I mean, that it's not going to look the same everywhere. And I think this paper does a really good job of kind of putting that in a visual way where you can see that this problem exists here. It's very bad here. This is something we really need to work on here and kind of tie in numbers to it. Mm -hmm. And I think I kind of mentioned this before. This paper for me really, really highlighted the importance of prevention. It's not just about treating infection. It's about preventing infections that there's always going to be infections. We have to prevent the ones that we can 
I mean, simple things like access to clean water, which I guess isn't that simple, but I mean, things that we can try to improve is access to clean water, access to health infrastructure, food safety management. I mean, all these kinds of things. If we can reduce the number of infections, we're removing part of the problem. A big part of the problem. Hmm. Infections themselves are a massive part of the problem. It's not just AMR. Mm-hmm. And while we knew that, now there's a number on it, you know? It it helps to put a number on it. So yeah, I, I have a bittersweet feeling about this article because I'm very happy that it exists. You know, I'm happy that we can have a number on it. But um, it's sad that this is the situation. And also yeah. I've been monitoring a little bit. I mean, not in English so much, but in Spanish. I've been monitoring the coverage in the general news of this article and... It's a bit of a doomsday narrative, you know, I, yeah. I, it's, it's to be expected. But what I don't really like is that they frame it in a sense like, oh, now we have data that is bringing us closer to having AMR as a leading cause of death in 2050. So they still frame it in that way. And I am so frustrated because you could also frame it in a way that is like okay now we have this data now we can put more pressure into the political systems to do something about it now this is actually helping us to get to a place where you know that doomsday future doesn't happen you can kind of like work around that like way but i guess it's just easier to kind of keep using the same narrative you don't have to rethink the way you present the data and yeah Uh, obviously i mean we didn't mention but a lot of people are reframing it in the way that now if this 1.2 number is uh, is what we go by, AMR is actually kind of killing more people than HIV and malaria together, mm-hmm. which is what people have in mind when they're talking about like people dying of infectious diseases. And uh, we should mention, uh, in case you haven't heard from this, these numbers before, this is antibacterial. Only. I mean, you did mention this is bacteria and antibiotic combinations that they looked at. So it's not bringing in uh, HIV, not bringing in malaria, it's not bringing in any antiviral, antifungal, anything like that. So if we're going to look at it from an AMR perspective with, you know, including all these other things, then the problem is bigger. This is Mm -hmm. only part of the problem if we're talking about AMR as a whole. This is one part of it and not all of it. So, I mean, you can look at that in many ways. You can look at it as a, this puts this high compared to malaria and HIV and whatnot, but you can also look at it as like, but then if we add all of that together, <laughs> so much there's, a, there's a lot of yeah. work to be done. A lot. Yeah. But I think, yeah, this paper, it is open access. We are going to give the link to the original article. There is a little commentary also published in the Lancet about it. And we will select one or two coverage in the popular news. So you can also share with your friends and family as well. It's good that we have it. But uh, we should do something with it, right? Not just keep it there as a reference yeah. point. Let's not just use it as that first sentence in all papers in the introduction saying, what, like you said, replacing the O'Neill report, basically. Let's uh, try to use it a bit more practically, a exactly. bit more enthusiastically. <laughs> well, with this, uh, we are done covering the two articles of this month, but I have a little piece more for you guys. And it's because this month we have been recommended to listen to the latest episode of This Week in Microbiology, which is a podcast about microbiology uh, this week in microbiology or twim i've been listening to this podcast they also have a sister or brother podcast called this week in biology which is kind of cool and i think this week in biology is the original one and then they did this week in microbiology 
but they have 200 episodes so it's been going for a long time <laughs> and yeah that w- they every episode which is not completely regular it happens every two weeks three weeks it depends they go through a topic or articles and they dwell actually into these articles for like half an hour and they really go through them nice and it turns out that in the last episode they actually brought up a really cool article on antibiotics and uh, we were shot out that maybe we could actually take a look at this and then maybe talk about it if it was interesting and i think that article is incredibly interesting and the coverage they do in twim of it it's really spot on and nice so w- this article was published in Embio in the end of 2021 and the title kind of says it all it's why do antibiotics exist it sounds like it's a bit of a metaphysical or an existential philosophical question, but I think they do have a, a very good reasoning for actually looking into this question. You know, antibiotics are as natural products have been existing in microbial communities and populations for a really long time. So do resistant genes as well. So the question is really like, w- how come microbes are so good at managing the use of antibiotics that they actually still exist after millennia, kind of, when us, that we started using antibiotics not even 100 years ago, we have really misused them and put in a situation where we are thinking they might stop working altogether. So the idea of the paper is looking into these questions. They go through um, background of the history of antibiotics, and it's a it's a long paper, but it's really cool and interesting. And then bringing in this ecological perspective and asking the question: Can we actually learn from microbes how to use antibiotics better? Can we learn this microbial stewardship of antibiotics and get some insights into this and be able to apply it in the way that we use antibiotics in the clinics? And I think this is beautiful because it's kind of trying to look at this ecological perspective, the proper, how, how do uh, microbes use antibiotics and can we actually learn from that natural setup and bring it into our clinical setup? So I really recommend that you guys uh, go in and listen to this episode. Uh, we leave a link in the show notes as well and a link to the article if you just rather just read the article but shout out from here to this week in microbiology twim and hope to keep here and then talking about antibiotic resistance and amr and with that we want to wrap up for this this month and hope you enjoyed it and we'll be back next month with a new episode and a new interview great thank you bye For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.